0: When you're ready, let's start this game.
1: Welcome to Unstaffed and Let's Unwind with award-winning science fiction and fantasy author Martha Wells. Let's find out about her writing process and the Murderbot Diaries. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library.
0: Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public
2: Library. Hi, and I'm Martha Wells.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. I know there's several librarians on staff that wish they were also on this call, so they send their hellos to you. Oh, that's really cool. And can you introduce our listeners to the Murderbot Diaries, which has won a Hugo Award for Best Series?
2: Oh, actually, it's one Yugo uh, uh, Award for best novel and two for best novella, also.
1: Gotcha. Yes, <laughs> yes, so I wanted to quite mention a few. <laughs> that.
2: It's a science fiction series set in the far future. The first five five or so books are uh, novella length, and then there's one novel so far. There'll be another novel coming out later this year in November. It's about a uh, construct who is part. Uh, machine intelligence part organic human tissue who was created by a corporation to be uh, enslaved as a security unit and it's the story of how it once it freed itself how it actually got the the confidence and kind of overcame depression and anxiety to go out in the world and uh, try to find its place basically and have a life
0: one of the things that I love about this series is that the SEC unit it reads as a non-neurotypical individual, which brings so many different people connecting to it, which is one of the things I love because I'm like, you know, that's exactly how I feel about people too here. So (laughs) what kind of um, process, what's it like to write a non-neurotypical individual and how you find connection with it?
2: Well, one thing I realized while I was writing it and from people's response to it is I don't know what it's like to write a neurotypical individual, apparently, because I was just writing how I thought the character would behave and and based on its situation. And um, I guess I drew a lot from my own personal um, issues, <laughs> basically.
0: In preparing for this interview, we, we did a lot of our own background research. And one of the things I've noticed is anytime it gets brought up is everybody connects with this character. So, I mean... Uh, have been just like, finding that so many people obviously fall into this line
2: um, it's it's been really interesting and I think it's there's there's been bad writing advice about basically making your characters very general and so people will identify with them and actually that's not very easy to identify with what makes it what's easy to identify with is people characters being very specific about uh, how they feel about different things. And Murderbot is incredibly specific about that. And also the issues that I kind of deal with and that I gave to Murderbot of depression and anxiety and, and these other things. The symptoms of those are common to a lot of different problems and issues that people have. So um, that wasn't intentional. That Again, that was just me writing how I thought the character would would be in these situations. So I think that also makes it easy to deal with. There's a lot more commonality uh, of experience there than I think most people realize. And
1: my next question kind of, threads off of that as well cuz while one might not say a murder bot should be cozy there's something comforting about a sarcastic sentient <laughs> sec unit that has hacked into its own government module and enjoys watching entertainment feed so um especially these past few years where life in general has just been very stressful it's been comforting and cozy to to go into the murderbot diaries and kind of escape. So what has um, your reaction been to the public's reaction for that?
2: I think it's, I, I find that I think the least surprising part, because especially, uh, you know, during the first year of the pandemic, and it was just so hard to do anything. I know some people got very productive and learned different languages and learned how to bake and, you know, built buildings and just in their backyard and all kinds of other things. But just I and a lot of other people I know had a lot of inertia and it was even really hard to do things that you liked. I, my reading, you know, I didn't read it nearly as much. I had writer's block for a while. Um, So I think the idea that sometimes for your own mental health, you need need to sit in front of the TV and have it show you something, you know, that's not stressful or that um, involves you, takes your mind away from, from your problems. So I don't think that's, I think that's, The least surprising is that most people had a lot of sympathy for that feeling that, especially when things are rough, you can't always be proactive when having to, you know, if you're struggling with something, if you're having to get, you know, a ton of stuff done. If you can't, you really are kind of at the end of your rope, but you can't stop, just, you know, you know, that you kind of need those moments to kind of recover and you need escapism. Uh, so yeah, I didn't. I didn't find that part particularly surprising.
0: How do you ration your media diet in, in that sense?
2: Oh, it's not. It's not easy. Um, I've been really busy these past since about. Um, well, I can't remember since about since last summer, basically of trying to get a bunch of stuff done that I had put off because of working on revisions for my fancy novel. It's coming out in May, and then working on the the first draft of the Murderbot novel. So I, you know, I, it was kind of involuntary rationing, but fortunately there have, been, as we moved into Christmas, a lot of the new streaming stuff is not putting out things, you know, so there's only, and, and, um, and the shows I was getting addicted to, like um, baking it and things like that. You can do other things while they're on just a couple of days ago, a friend of mine introduced me to Stardew Valley And the game and I'm like my addictive personality or obsessive personality about games has started to like come into play I'm like I may have to I'm gonna have to like be really strict with myself with that it's also I'm in a a little bit of a phase right now where I can I have more time but I need to be working on the next novel (laughs) so I can't I can't play too much so yeah it's a it's 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 an ongoing effort (laughs)
1: stardew valley is delightful
2: (laughs) yeah it was i haven't played i haven't for for a long time i had uh problems with my hands with tendinitis and then i got rheumatoid arthritis so i had to be i couldn't do regular gaming you know i have to i have to be fairly careful and now i'm at a point finally where i can i can not worry about it too much i can do it again so i haven't i haven't actually done any actual video games in like years and years I play Pathfinder on roll 20 with a bunch of friends. So <laughs> yeah.
0: We're two for two this year so far with Pathfinder references, and I'm not complaining about this.
2: And Steven oh, is a band. <laughs> oh good. What do you um, what do you play? What is your character?
0: Normally I'm a, I'm a, a rogue type, but in the past i guess year my my 14 year old son has decided he wants to get involved in this so i have been forced into the 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 GM role so i am i am
2: uh, that's so hard
0: it is we uh we, we're playing in the we were doing the otari stuff leading into uh the abomination vaults path
2: oh wow we haven't done we are like in uh Skin Saw man
0: okay so you're you're doing the 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 og stuff yeah <laughs>
2: And I'm a ranger. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a
0: lot of fun. Yes. is uh, Have you, well, I'm going to, I was going to ask a question about editing, but I'm going to jump down here because this was something that I wanted to talk about because I wasn't sure where we were going to go. But one of the things that you've written in the past was a world building essay with Cobalt Press. So um, yeah. how did you, uh, I was going to ask you if you're a gamer, but we've already covered that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you, uh, how did you get, involved in that and what influence did that role-playing game writing process bring to your 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 novellas and novels?
2: Uh, I first started, got into gaming in college when there were other people to do it with. <laughs> and then um, I hadn't done it for a long time. Um, my husband did RPGs too, but we never really put a group together uh, just where we live. Oh, and the way I got into the essay was um, Janice Silverstein was the editor for that volume. And she she had worked with me on the Raxura books for Nightshade Books. And so she'd asked me to contribute an essay, uh, which was a lot of fun to do. And then I got back into gaming again. And when the pandemic started and a friend of ours, she tried to play once uh, when she was much younger and uh, had an, the other players Uh, weren't very, were, uh, you know, pretty mean to her and, you know, just invited her to kill her character and stuff, that kind of stuff that happens occasionally. And so she asked us and she had a friend in California um, who was a a DM for like several different groups. And so we got together on roll 20 and like half the groups in California. And then one of our friends in Austin also plays with us. So it's been, it's been really good.
0: Do you find that you bring a lot of that role playing world building into you, like the knowledge that you that kind of comes from role playing into your writing?
2: I think I did, especially back in the 90s when I was really seriously trying to uh, get started as a writer and create new worlds and stuff. I'd been writing all the time when I was a kid and in college, but when I really seriously started on original work, um, I think it did help. I really love the kind of material culture. And the, the way you you build that in the game with all the different things you can get and all the descriptions of stuff. So I've always liked that part of game manuals. So um, uh, yeah, I think it did it did influence me.
1: Jumping off of that, can you introduce a little bit how you began your start into writing and any advice for new writers?
2: Um, I actually, I kind of always wanted to be a writer. Um, when I, and from the time I first realized that was a real job that people could do. When I was in college, I wrote a few uh, stories and got um, and a friend of mine, well, that's how actually how I met him. Stephen Gould uh, is a writer and he did a writer's workshop through uh, Texas a and m University of Free U, which was kind of a little community education thing that they were doing at that time. That was a lot of fun and they did all classes and all kinds of different things and he did a writer's workshop through that. And that was my first workshop. And then I did other workshops around in Texas, in Austin and Houston. I did Turkey City with Bruce Sterling, and I did some with Rory Harper, and then some. We had some at um, Texas A&M with the Science Fiction Committee that Infinite uh, Variable. And I started writing my first novel, and Steve actually recommended an agent to me that uh, an agent that had approached him, and, and he wasn't quite ready yet with his book with which was Jumper, is when he was writing Jumper, and the agent liked my book, and that was The Element of Fire, and and sold it pretty quickly. And so that that got me started. I was pretty young when that happened. I still don't know what I'm doing. It was, I, I was, I think I was 26 when the book sold. So yeah, I had no clue what I was doing.
1: Would, would there be any advice that you would say to yourself now back to your younger writer self?
2: Uh, for now, I'd say learn as much as you can about publishing. Back then, the web was still kind of in development, so there weren't nearly as many resources, and they weren't nearly as easy to find as they are now. Now there's all these resources by editors and agents and and other writers about how publishing works and things to watch out for and potential scams and all this other kind of stuff. Back then, you basically had to go. I did, and I did do this. You had to go to a few seminars, and there was also the good thing about being in science fiction and fantasy and going to conventions. Is there's panels on all that kind of stuff, and that used to be basically the best way to to learn it. Now you can do it online.
0: Something you you just mentioned a moment ago. what was talking about how you're still trying to, you still kind of feel like you're not sure what you're doing, and <laughs> yeah. and I find this so fascinating because, I mean, as we talked right here in the intro, we've got multiple Hugos. We've, we've got Nebula nominations. <laughs> we've got all kinds of awards that go with your writing. Yet, there's it seems that there's a common thread of imposter syndrome to these officers that we talk to. And and it just amazes me that, you know, with all the, the praise that comes with what you've done, that you still feel like you're not sure where to, or what you're doing at times.
2: Yeah. Well, it's just such a complicated profession, really. And I think that's One of the things people have problems with when they start out is that, especially if you've uh, written fanfic and you've been a hobby writer for a long time uh, and you decide you want to try to go professional, there's so many things you don't know and you just, (laughs) you don't know what you don't know. And it is such a complicated industry. I actually felt pretty like I pretty, I knew what I was doing for a period there uh, when the Raksura books were coming out. Cause I think I, okay, you know, I got a handle on everything and then, Murderbot came out and got popular, which put me kind of in a different realm of stuff. I'm encountering stuff I'd never encountered before. (laughs) And now it's like, again, I feel like I'm up there in a new kind of new tier where I don't know what I'm doing again.
1: I know that you got signed for a bunch of books at one time, like six new titles, which included the. So I can see that being like overwhelming.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that had happened one time before in. for the Ilrian, the, the Ilrian trilogy where I was signed for three books at one time. And that was kind of, I think I actually, I was still, it was ended up four books. So I was finishing the last contract and that was kind of uh, scary for me. It hasn't been as scary this time. And I think that's just basically because of me being more experienced. And um, after I had a career crash around 2006 and couldn't get anything published until finally nightshade books bought the the cloud roads in 2010 and that makes you really appreciate having a contract <laughs> you know so um it's been i already have two books finished on it The two books they're coming out this year so only four books to go
1: i'm looking forward to reading them both of them i i, I think i'm gonna have on my pre-order list oh good <laughs> my favorite character dynamic with the Murderbot Diaries is that connection between Murderbot and Dr. Mensa. Can you share a little bit about their um, character dynamics together?
2: Well, that was, I kind of don't plan those things out. I just kind of introduce the characters and see what happens. And that was with Dr. Mensa, And that was actually the first Murderbot scene I wrote. I was finishing up The Harbors of the Sun, which was the last in the Raxura series. And I got this, idea, and I was getting a lot of ideas for stuff. And I got this idea for the Murderbot store, first for all systems read. And at first it was going to be a short story. Then I realized it needed to be longer. And that first scene was when uh, Murderbot that I wrote was when Murderbot's in the cubicle and she knocks on the cubicle wall um, to want to have a normal conversation in this very strange, abnormal situation. And so that kind of was the... Core of the whole story, really, and really the, a lot of the series is their relationship
1: and emotions, and yeah, you know, yeah, even even murderbot feeling things and not wanting to feel things.
2: <laughs> yeah, and a lot of it's her uh, trying to deal with. I mean, this is uh, what she's really—you know—they she she knew intellectually that the sec units were people that were controlled and enslaved, but when she met Murderbot. it became really real to her. And so her way to deal with that was just, I'm just going to treat this as an employee team member situation, whether anybody likes it or not, because this is how I have to deal with this, this terrible situation and just go in and go all in with that. And that's what formed their relationship.
1: I really, and she breaks things down too, in a way that it's like, oh yes, this is what she's from her perspective. I appreciate that.
0: You kind of started down this path, but I want to go into it a little bit further here. Where I think you explained the concept as attack ideas or attack novels.
2: Yeah, uh, that's what I. Yeah, I, I that was an ex- expression that was uh, a term that was going around when I first started out. I haven't heard it very much, but attack novel is just when you get another idea and in the middle of doing, usually in the middle of doing something else, very inconveniently, where you can't really stop and work on it. And but it won't go away, and um, uh, you really want to write it.
0: <laughs> and so, Murderbot kind of spawned out of one of these.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was very much an attack idea.
0: <laughs> Is that your normal writing process, or
2: no? Um, usually, sometimes I plan stuff out in advance. Um, I a lot of times it, it might be somewhat of the process for the first book if it's a series, and then. I, then the planning kicks in when I have to do the others or the other novellas or whatever. Usually, it's a little more, it's a little slower. It's like I start getting, I, I kind of want to write about this character, and I kind of want, or this, I start getting an idea for a world. It'd be really fun to do something in this kind of world, and then they all kind of comes together slowly. The attack idea, or attack story, this like Murderbot, where it's like the whole story is just suddenly there, and in in incoherent shape and in most of it and and then it's just figuring out the logistics as you go along and if it needs to be longer or shorter or whatever.
0: I think I saw somewhere that you, you mentioned that part of the editing process was that you, you found yourself often starting your story further along than you intended and then having to rewrite an entire
2: story. Yeah. All systems read pretty much I wrote from beginning once I got that scene down and I started with back at the beginning and I got it just you know one page after another, all the way through. It took me about a month for about, it's about 32,000 words, something around there. For people who don't know, it's about a third the length of a normal size book. And for the others, artificial condition and rogue protocol and exit strategy, especially with artificial condition, I tried to start, you know, I start in, I skip too much. And this story seems to want to be written, you know, from, you know, everything that happens. Usually that's not, that's not a great idea, but uh, this seems to this seems to be this this way these stories work, and usually with Artificial Condition and a lot of the others, I probably wrote fifteen to twenty thousand words, and then ended up going having to go back and start over and get rid of most of that, which makes the whole process that much more complicated. And then even in the first version of Artificial Condition, Art was not even a character. Um, there was just a throwaway reference to this transport that helped Murderbot change its appearance so it could it could more easily pretend to be human. And then at certain point it just wasn't working. And I realized, yeah, that that's the story. That's really and I needed to go back and, and do that part. And once I did, it really started to work. The problem with the Murderbot voice is I could write almost anything in it, but that doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> it's going to be a good story. Um I could write about going to the grocery store, you know, in in the Murderbot voice. So That's why I think I I produce so much stuff that basically has to be cut out. When I'm writing in the third person, I don't usually do that. Usually I'll just get stuck and kind of start feeling like, yeah, this is not going, it's just kind of laying here, you know, and then I'll go back and realize, okay, yeah, I needed to add, you know, there needs to be more characters here or less characters, or we need to get moving faster or something like that.
0: I want to also touch on something that, that we kind of already brought up as well with the this being a long—I don't want to say—now six work contract you have with, with Tor. I, I think I've read that you generally timed it, tended to take each project as an individual thing. Where you, if something else came from it, it was great, but you didn't never actually kind of plan for more. Does that change when you have six books in front of you?
2: Yeah, it really does because before, after my career crash. I would usually either sell Nightshade, bought The Cloud Roads and The Serpent Sea together. And I'd actually, I hadn't been doing anything that time. I'd already written both of them, basically. So I didn't want to do a story arc, start a story arc that then find out I can't get that book published. Uh, that has the conclusion in it. So I just usually did standalones with kind of an, and try to bring them to a conclusion. The only ones in the Raxura books were that were, again, were bought together was the Edge of Worlds and the Harbors of the Sun. So I was able to do a, an ongoing story over those two books. And yeah, I this has been, and Murderbot 2, All Systems Red was written to be a standalone. And then Tor had asked, when they bought it, asked for Tor.com, asked for two a, a second novella. And it could have been something else. They didn't, We didn't know the Murderbot series was going to take off at that point. I kind of wanted to write more. And then again, Artificial Condition was sort of written to be a standalone. But I had the arc in mind. Where Murderbot ended up back with Doctor Mensa, and so when we started doing the others, I was able to do that. And then Network Effect was basically I had I had the idea I wanted to get Art and Murderbot back together, and that's where Net- Network Effect came from. And then and so on. And actually, I've written the first Murderbot novel of this contract. There's going to be two more, and I'm not sure yet what where I'm going to go. I still have that habit of trying to make things you know, mostly standalone. So um, I'm not sure I'm going to go with that yet or if I'm going to do a continuing story across two books or just do, you know, the episodes kind of the way I've been doing.
1: And I've kind of enjoyed how you have it episodic because sometimes I do get them out of order and it doesn't hurt it too much if I, I listen to this one before reading this one. It, yeah, it, it worked for me, but um, I can see having the, the novels be
2: linear as well. Actually, Fugitive Telemetry is the only one I wrote out of order. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because it it's actually takes place before network effect. And mm. it's because uh, I was starting, that was when we were starting to get the early rumbles of the pandemic. But I tried to start the book that would have basically been System Collapse, the one coming out in November, and couldn't get going on it. And finally I just wrote a scene where Murderbot was standing in the station and there was a dead body. And I thought, well I'll just and then I started writing, going, you know, yeah, a murder mystery. Let's do a murder mystery. And then kind of slotted it in between uh exit strategy and network effect.
1: No, oh, I really enjoyed that one because it was it had a, a little different of the vibe with the being a mystery trying to solve that and then no. the chaos happening. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I also wanted to mention that I really enjoyed The Rise and Fall of Sanctuary Moon. <laughs> um, I, I want it to be a real show so that I can see what that would be like. Um, I just wanted to throw that out there that I, I appreciate that that is a thread throughout. And I know your, your fantasy novel that's releasing in May is called The Witch King. And could you describe The Witch King? And then I also wanted to ask about uh, it's got reference materials already. You you draw maps to kind of get you started. I saw um, the redrawing by Reese da- Davies of the map for reference. Yeah. So I was curious about um, both the new title and then how you develop reference materials for your works.
2: The um, Well, usually it's because I've had problems in the past of not Doing reference materials and then getting, oh, because I thought it was going to be a standalone book and then going to the second book and like, oh, I have to remember all this stuff. And so I tried to do be better about that this time. The map is just basically for my reference. And then they decided they wanted a map in the book. So I drew it in a way that that someone could actually see and took a phone picture of it. And then they sent it to to Reese Davies and did a beautiful version but it's a, it's set in, it's a new secondary world. And basically it was kind of my pandemic novel that kind of came out of nowhere. I, I've always been a big fantasy reader and I love fantasy TV. And I've been watching a lot of different things and watching um, some Chinese fantasy, including especially the untamed, which is really a wonderful 50 episode series. It sounds like a lot, but once you start watching it, it's not nearly enough. And then kind of, you know, thinking about basically the idea of an empire comes in uh, to a group of peaceful civilizations and just sweeps across it. And what that would be like to, to have this come out of nowhere when you had no idea something like that was out there. And then to try to take back over your world and try to put it back together. And then what you would do to save what you had had regained basically. And I wanted to tell it kind of over a long period of time. And so I used characters who were immortals, but who were really deeply personally involved in their world. And so it's kind of an Epic fantasy, the good parts version, because it, um, it moves pretty fast through a lot of um, terror. It could be like a 10 volume Epic fantasy, or it could just be this one book. (laughs) So, but I am going to try to write a sequel to it. So yeah, it was just, um, Probably something I've been thinking of, of, of thinking about a lot of things, especially based on what early colonization must have been like in our world, what uh, our ancient world looked like, what our world would have looked like without colonization, all those kinds of different things and, and kind of putting them into this book.
1: And there was the element of, because is it Kai, the main character? Yeah. And then he gets murdered, but he has consciousness. So that element made me think a little of Murderbot too, of this idea of just
2: consciousness in general. (laughs) Yeah, he's a demon and this is different. uh, He can move into different bodies um, and everything. So yeah, that was fun to play with. It
0: sounds fun. One of the things that I love about Murderbot is the fact that it's a novella. I love reading, but I find that my brain can't stay focused long enough to get past like like when 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 somebody puts out that 400 plus page book I'm like yeah I want to read this but I'm sorry there was a shiny object over here and <laughs> and, and Murderbot Diaries kind of uh hits that sweet spot of where I I can give it all my attention. And and it's such fun to be there. So you have written novellas, you've written novels, you've written blogs, you've written in shared universes, uh, where it's other people's uh, intellectual property that you're coming into. Uh, You've got a Magic the Gathering, you've got Stargate, Star Wars, and I'm sure I'm missing some in there. But what has been the most challenging format for you to write in?
2: I would say they're all equally challenging Um, having to work in a world that other people have developed and you're trying not to, you're trying to come up with new things and make your story work with that world can be very difficult. Magic the Gathering was hard because with, uh, with Stargate Atlantis and, and um, Star Wars, you have the actor's performances to go by and that gives you a lot of material right there with Magic the Gathering. You don't have that. You have other works written in it, but you don't. You don't have that kind of reliable through line of of being able to see it, and everyone can see it and agree on. Yeah, this is the performance. And so, because you're you're looking at the books, and there's a lot of different interpretations. So um, that was pretty difficult, but uh, it was a lot of fun too, because I also like working in groups. And working with other people and being able to talk to, you know, your editor, uh, Nick Kelman about what we were doing and go by an outline that other people have come up with. And part of the story, some of the stories that were ongoing had to be outlined very carefully because there were so many different things that the person who was going to take over next after this group of stories needed to have set up for them and everything. And then parts of the outline were just, these two characters meet somewhere in this story. (laughs) And then there's just a blank page. So um, it was a lot of fun. It was just it, it was different, and I like to do different things. Yeah, I don't. Feel, I haven't ever hit anything that I I've tried to do that I wasn't able to do yet. I've never written. Re- I've never written scripts. I've never written a script for a graphic novel or anything like that. And I'm kind of reluctant to do that because I'm really tired <laughs> a lot of the time, and I don't want to go in and learn a different format that has all these different expectations. I think especially. Comic writing and graphic novel writing are very, are really a different sensibility when you're working with the artist and you're both kind of working together, which I think would be really cool, but also probably a lot of work to get up to speed, especially with another person who's depending on you to, you know, keep this thing going. That would probably be more challenging to me than than the kind of things I've I've already done. And what
1: are the similarities and differences writing and fantasy versus science fiction?
2: Well, I think it's mostly similar. I mean, I really don't, I'm not writing hard science fiction. It gets labeled hard science fiction sometimes, but it's really space opera and anything I think far future is going to be, you're past the point where you can possibly extrapolate based on what we have now. You just have to come up with stuff and um, that's, it's just like fantasy. they both have to be internally consistent I run into people who think fancy is like easy because you just make stuff up, and it's like no, it has to be consistent, and what you you have to your world has to work. You can't just pull rabbits out of hats. You know, if you do, you have to explain how they got in there in the first place. You know, that's what makes a good fancy novel, and I think the world building is equally complex in both cases. So I don't think they're really very different at all.
0: One of the things that it, it blows my mind, but we live in such an age where everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to tell you it, and they're always up in your face. So it's it's a toxic fandom situation kind of thing. It comes with not just dealing with intellectual properties that everybody feels like they they have a piece of because it's that that cultural memory that we all share, but it, it kind of boggled my mind that you were catching grieve to the point that you had to disassociate yourself with the internet for a while because of people complaining about publisher decisions about price points.
2: Yeah. Yeah. i mean that's still going on. Part of it is some men do not want to pay women for books. They don't, it, that seems to be the overwhelming majority. And there's, and I, there's a lot of, again, it's a lot of men who they li- really like the book and they resent that that it's a woman who wrote it and that they wouldn't have to pay for it. And then there's other people that are just like, just assume that writers make, I guess, because they they know something about self-publishing. So they just assume traditional writers make all these decisions too. And it's like, no, you don't have any, you know, you might be consulted on things like the cover art and um, how the map looks and things like that. But that's about it. You don't the publisher controls the format, the price, the distributor, and everything else about it. And also people not understanding there's a whole team of people that has to work on this book to get it ready to sell, you know, just from the the copy editor and the proofer and the, the Tor.com is, or I think Tor is now using uh, cold readers as an extra proof extra proofing process then the designer and the artist and all the other and all the team and the marketing the publicity and everything that gets it up there to the distributor uh the latest flack was because system collapse was announced uh now when it's not coming out until november was announced a couple months ago which i don't understand i think that's a people coming to it to publishing from different areas and it's like books are always announced several months in advance, when it's not announced several months in advance, that's when you think something's gone wrong. It's like, how did you not, you know, because it's such a long process and you also need pre-orders. If you don't get pre-orders, this author is not going to have another book and it's just that simple. So that's why you want, as soon as you, it's, it's like you have the manuscript and you schedule it, you know, there's a little, there. then, then it's going to be announced pretty quickly because, you know, and again, it's like, not everybody hears things. It's like on when I was on Twitter, you would talk about the book and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and feel like you were just, you know, that's all you're talking about. And there's always someone who pops up and said, oh, I didn't know that. You know, how could I not know that? And it's, like, oh, no. and it's because there's so much information. Even the people who are actually following you for this information will miss it over and over again. And that's one reason why you have to do that. And it takes a lot of getting the information out about books, because books can fail so easily if people don't know they're out there. And especially if an author is not getting much of a much, if any, of a marketing or uh, publicity budget, you know, then you have to work harder and having a long lead time where you can tell people and you can tell your friends and get them to tell people. And it's just it's just so important. So it was just a really weird, you know, (laughs) astonishing thing to be yelled at, because we announced the book, it's 10 months in advance. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it has to be.
0: <laughs> it's just so in, in, in crazy in that sense that, I mean, you don't hear the same kind of thing from like movies when it's like, we know that, mm-hmm. you know, five years from now, what the DC universe is going to do, yeah. what the Marvel is going to do, but you know, how dare we know that a book is coming out. Yeah. That
2: was very now. strange. And yeah, I am probably going to have to just leave the internet except for maybe my blog and uh you know a couple of other things, but that's, you know, I'm just probably going to have to to just cut the cord. The big problem is you'd like to have a place to for announcements of things and I like to recommend other books. I've even had trouble recommending other books lately where people yell at me about the price of the, of someone else's book from a different publisher and it's like I'm not the retailer, want me to do customer service. And it's like, I'm not the retailer, (laughs) I'm not the distributor, I'm not the publisher, I can't help you. I'm just saying, I read this book and I liked it. And it's like, if I can't even do that without getting flack, part of the problem is the system I'm on now does not have Twitter before the end, before the, the great collapse of Twitter, there were a lot of protections where you could just make general announcements of recommendations and books that were coming out and award news and that kind of stuff. And then people couldn't reply. You could do it so people can reply. And it's just like an announcement. And you can't do that on these other services. And that's really a problem. I know some people who apparently basically created a bot just to do their announcements. So you can reply to the bot all you want, screaming it, you know, (laughs) that you're mad because they announced a book or whatever. I don't know. I may have to look into that there is like an announcement list I have that people can sign up on my website. And so that may be half, I may have to be use that more to get the information out.
0: Well, I, I hope you don't have to retreat because I enjoy being able to, to see what's coming and, and the advice that you give. So I'm going to paraphrase a, a recent movie I saw here and address this to everybody else out there. It's never too late to stop being a jerk. So No yeah. <laughs> <laughs> problem. <laughs> We, we promise some fun here, and one of the things yes. that we like to do is uh, we have a game that you might know as something else, but because we are a PG podcast and, and Sarah <laughs> refuses to let me curse, we call it Kiss Mary Ditch. <laughs> so what I have is I've got a couple different categories here. I've disguised them behind some what I consider clever titles so I'm going to give those to you. You'll pick one of those. And then inside of that, there'll be three items that you get to like, love, and then get rid of. Okay. So your categories to choose from are gatekeepers, a river runs through it, living rent-free in your head, and getting into ship shape.
2: Ah, uh, that's tempting. Um, just one?
0: Just, well, you know, um, you're in charge. If you want to do more, we'll do whatever okay. you pick.
2: The ship shape and living rent-free in your head.
0: We are going to talk about different shapes of spaceships first. Okay. <laughs> so we got to like, love, and get rid of. You've got to choose between Millennium Falcon, Moya from Farscape, and the Enterprise.
2: Oh, okay. That's that's bad. <laughs>
0: um, I, I preface these. All of these are all of these categories. I may I, are going to be geared toward your interests. Where I've made them as difficult as I okay. can.
2: <laughs> Ah, I guess I would say love Moya, like uh, the Millennium Falcon, and then get rid of the Enterprise, even though I I like the Enterprise, too. (laughs)
0: Living rent-free, we're going to talk about David Tennant. Oh, yay. (laughs) So, Detective Investigator Alicardi, The Doctor, or Crowley?
2: Oh, man. Who was who was Alec, Detective Gap? What was the name of the show of Alacardi was in?
0: Uh, American. It would have been Broadchurch.
2: Oh, God! I love Broadchurch. Um, <laughs> so it was so uh, Broadchurch, uh, Crowley, and doc, the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'll have to for for fun. I guess love the doctor, like Crowley, and then get rid of Broadchurch because Broadchurch was pretty depressing when we when we looked at it, uh, even later on. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that was a hard one.
0: That that that's that's one where he just looked like he was exhausted doing that, that yeah. project. Yeah.
2: That was, yeah, I mean, it was such a good show, but you're, but by the end of the first season, I was like, okay, he's actually dying <laughs> and her life is ruined. and uh, here we are.
0: <laughs> this wasn't a drama. this was real life where he got he, he decided he wasn't gonna be an actor. He was gonna be a detective and he made mistakes in his life.
2: Yes, yeah. Um. That's what it looked like. I think that's a great show.
0: To give you, uh, just to let you know what you you skipped on, uh, Gatekeepers, I would have made you choose between Stargate, SG-1, and Atlantis. Uh, Ah, that
2: would be hard.
0: uh, A River Runs Through It was the one I was secretly hoping because I can never get somebody to talk this fandom with me, but I saw that you were a fan of it. We were going to be talking The Rivers of London, so I would have made you choose uh, between Peter Grant, Thomas Nightingale, and Leslie May.
2: Oh, okay. That's actually an easy one. It's love Peter like like Nightingale and get rid of Leslie May. Oh, I liked man. her. I liked her at the beginning, but yeah, as she without evolved. Without going so to
0: spoilers, yes.
2: Yeah, without going into spoilers, as that character evolved, there were issues. So yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. that. That's that's
0: such a great series. It, it is, and not enough people are reading it. And I encourage people to do it. So when I saw that you were a fan of it, and it was potentially one of your escape things, I was like, yes.
2: Oh yeah, it's comfort reading. I reread it. Uh, uh, Usually I try, I don't, there's so many books now it's hard to do the whole thing when a new one comes out. But usually that's what I did for a long time. It's really rewards rereading too.
0: That's one of the series I rant out when I complain about how libraries are organized because in, at, at Sarah's particular library, that one is considered a mystery group, whereas the uh, Dresden Files is considered a sci-fi novel, even though it's very you know similar in, in tone and style. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, Laurel K. Hamilton's uh, Anita Blake series, which is considered a fiction, but they're all dealing with the same kind of theme of a detective <laughs> solving supernatural crimes but yeah. none of them are in the same place
2: and i would say these are all three fantasy they should all be in the same spot yeah that's wild i never because i buy them so i i get them as soon as they come out
0: my theory is it's all based on who is who is stooping who in in in, in the in the books is yeah. where they get placed
1: <laughs> or the cataloger <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of books what are you currently reading slash watching
2: uh, I just finished The Blue Beautiful World by Karen Lord. That's in the same series as her book, the, the Best of All Possible Worlds and the Galaxy Game. That's a novella that's going to be, I've forgotten now the publisher, but its I got to read it early. That's a novella that's coming out in the next few months. That was fabulous. I'm looking forward to Malka Older has The Mimicking of Known Successes. I think that's coming out uh, in March. Also, I have... Oh, I have Babel by R. F. Kwong, which I need to start. um I've I had it sitting the hardcover sitting around for a while. and I really I really, really enjoyed her her previous fantasy trilogy. Um, that was really good. And watching, we watched Three Pines, which mm-hmm. is a mystery series uh, from a from a book series. Louise Penny. Louise Penny. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And that's probably the last big one we watched. There's a bunch of I'm also watching um, The Legend of Vox machina the um, DND <laughs> series uh, and I'm actually looking forward to the DND movie really badly too. I really want to see it uh, Oh and the, then we've just watched uh, Wakanda forever' mm-hmm. recently love that one. I,
0: I want to see this DND movie so bad but I am I'm traumatized <laughs> by, by the Jamie Fox one and, and all those ones that came previous.
2: It just looks so good. I mean, I'm the I've seen like every trailer multiple times, and it just looks so good. Oh, Andor, that was another one that just killed okay. me. That was such a good series. Oh, really loved that.
1: I I watched that, loved it, and then I watched Obi Wan Kenobi, and it wasn't as good. I was hoping. Good. I was like, nope. Andor was way better.
2: Yeah, well, they're also different. I kind of mm-hmm. think they're almost doing the same thing as Marvel is doing, where the, the series are also different. Some are more serious and dramatic, and some are more comedy, and some are kind of mysteries. And, you know, and I like that different thing where you're never quite sure what the, the genre is going to be. That's kind of nice. And I think Star Wars is doing a little bit of like The Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett are so very different from Andor and from the Obi Wan Kenobi series. So and then the others like Bad Batch and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's nice when they're different. It's not the same tone all the time. It's been fun.
0: Do you find yourself? I mean, how big of a fan are we talking? Are, do you do you have to watch it as they come out?
2: Um, sometimes I know because I have the obsessive personality thing. So if I start one, I might have to finish it. So it's like with Andor, I watched the I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I guess I I knew it's like I'm gonna get sucked into this. And so I watched the first one, then had to watch the other two, but they didn't have the others out yet. So I very deliberately didn't kind of wait in until the whole thing was done before I started it. My husband doesn't like to do that. He likes to watch. You know, one a week, which drives me crazy because, you know, I get started, especially if there's a story arc. I want to finish it right there, you know, until 3 a.m., you know. So, oh, the other one was Only Murders in the Building.
1: So good. I loved it.
2: Yeah. I wanted to watch it, but I don't think we had Hulu, whatever it was on. And then I finally started it—the first one when the second one was was being put up. So that was nice because I just would flow through the whole thing. And then got to the end of the second season. Was you're kidding me? Oh God! You know I should have known that they would do that. But
1: the third season looks really good. They're they're yeah. adding. Is it Meryl Streep?
0: I thought good. it was. But I think maybe so. it
2: is. I can't remember now. But yeah, now I can't remember.
0: I, I want to <laughs> hang out with Steve Martin, Martin Short so bad.
2: <laughs> I can I can taste it.
0: <laughs> Going to do uh, just uh, rapid fire questions here of put like a minute on the clock here. We'll try to get through as many of these as we can. Okay. Do you learn by watching or doing? Doing. Do you correct people's grammar? No. Uh, what's your go to snack?
2: Ugh, um, probably bread, just toast, oddly enough. <laughs> Favorite cooking show? Ah, uh, I have so many, but probably Baking It or um, uh, Next Iron Chef.
0: Technology or magic? Magic. Place that you want to visit but haven't.
2: Oh, um, Angkor Wat.
0: Something you wish you had done.
2: Ah, Traveled more when I was younger.
0: Best gift you've gotten from a publisher?
2: Oh gosh, um, the checks really. <laughs> <laughs> but actual gift, um, some little uh, metal models of like uh, Curiosity and the space station and, and the different ships that, that from NASA. It wasn't from NASA, it was they, the NASA puts them out and, and the, the publisher sent me those, my editor sent me those. That's awesome.
0: And to wrap it up here uh, on these questions of what movie do you enjoy quoting the most?
2: Well, probably Monty Python uh, and the Holy Grail. It has to be that. <laughs> what is a typical writing day like for you? I usually try to write in the morning because that's when, oh know my brain just works better. Sometimes it just depends. Sometimes I can do it in the afternoon too. I think it's that um, decision fatigue, if you've ever had that that gets worse as the day goes on. And if you have a meal, sometimes you can circumvent it for a while and get something done. But yeah, right in the morning and then try to, you know, answer email sometimes as I'm going along and then sometimes afterward and then try to do the chores and stuff, you know, send mail off and and that kind of thing. Though usually it doesn't because I'm kind of scattershot. So if something comes up, and I can get it done. I want to do it right then. So I will like skip around a lot and things like that.
0: One of the questions we have asked since day one, and I will continue to ask this because we kind of use it as a, a hint of what might be coming. strangest thing in the search history.
2: Oh, strangest thing in the search history. Um, of course, now I'm going blank. I've done some things like how bats fly and, and things like that alcoholic drinks from egypt and india because i was coming up with drinks for (laughs) my book and so i was kind of looking at different combinations i don't tend to have like really strange things i guess it's all just sort of weird world building weirdish not really weird world building questions for us
1: we love that
0: (laughs) i have not met a rabbit hole i will not fall down i mean i'm over here i've got notes about uh the untamed and and several other things that i'm going to be diving into once we're, we're out of here oh cool
2: <laughs> don't look up the untamed because there's a lot of spoilers okay. and it'll spoil you because I was like I, I thought I'll, I'll just look at a list of the characters and there was gigantic spoilers in them so yeah be careful <laughs> noted
1: we are a library podcast how have libraries impacted your life
2: Quite a lot. When I was a kid, we went to the library a lot. Uh, started out with a small little branch library in River Oaks in Fort Worth. And then um, this is not the rich River Oaks. This is the poor River Oaks. And then uh, moved to the Fort Worth Public Library uh, as I got older. And we there was so much more selection and much bigger libraries in the, the different branches. And that's where I first started reading science fiction, because... In this one Fort Worth Public Library, the children's section was next to the adult science fiction section. And I didn't know I was supposed to go down that aisle. <laughs> I just kept, you know, I, I I didn't find the rest of the children's section for a long time. it'd yeah, huge. I mean, that's where I read so many of the books that really were inspiration and foundation for me.
1: That's amazing that it's all in the library setup, that that's where you discovered sci-fi. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool.
2: Well, they had a little one of those little metal paperback rack things that mm-hmm. they used to have all the time of pulp books with all yes. these wild yes. covers, and so that drew my attention, you know. But yeah, that was—I probably would have read science fiction at some point, I think. But that really got me. I've read a lot of books that I were too—I was too young for, which is always great.
0: <laughs> it gives you something to go back and go, oh
2: yeah yeah and this was yeah and you go back and read them somebody says well this book had this in it and you're like it did i read that see any of that yeah and this was one of the libraries too where the librarians didn't question you about what you were checking out is like, sure.
0: actually we've got one more question i want to ask because i i love kind of knowing these things you have a degree in anthropology Mm -hmm. what was the original plan
2: um, I did originally want to be a writer, but um, I didn't kind of know how to do that, and um, I thought about getting into journalism, but I wasn't really sure. I'd also always liked that kind of studying cultures and and archaeology and that kind of thing. It just seemed really interesting, and Texas A&M had an archaeology program too, and so yeah, I thought yeah, so that's what I ended up in, and I really enjoyed it, and it was I. It's been really helpful for kind of building worlds. It's kind of kind of coming at world building from a holistic viewpoint so yeah i don't i, I can't, it's been so long i don't remember why it was it just seemed like something i always wanted to do
0: it was indiana jones wasn't it
2: yeah probably <laughs> <laughs>
0: everybody just wants to go out and punch nazis and if you can yeah. do it while discovering something old and, yeah. and cool why
2: not And they don't tell you it's like, it's really hot and you carry heavy things. And when you start out, you're the person who's carrying all the heavy things. (laughs) And yeah, lots of rocks and buckets of dirt.
0: (laughs) Were you more into the human aspect or the uh, the paleontology aspect?
2: Oh, definitely the human aspect. I mean, the others are interesting, but just the cultures and all the little details you could find out and on the, all the little things that put to, that go up into making a society and a culture. For archaeology, I really like the the material culture. There was a book about um, in, in small things forgotten. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting about that.
1: Is that like the small objects that it looks into? Yeah, and just like
2: the In Southwest, in in most of American archaeology, you're not finding, people think you're finding ruins. It's like, no, you're finding like, here's half a bead. (laughs) Now, what did, or this, here's a weird metal thing. And it's like, what did that, you know, in historical archaeology, what did that go to and trying to figure all that stuff out?
1: My um, library science degree is actually in museum studies. So that little aspect is also something that I really enjoy. Even though I don't use it in my professional, I just loved learning about all of
0: it.
2: Oh yeah, and, and historical archaeology is really interesting too and people I think don't realize. I had one friend who was like, "Oh, it sounds like they're digging up Williamsburg." And I was just like, "Did you think all that was just there? Did you think they just parted the bushes one day and, you know, it was still there?" <laughs> it's like, "No." <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's 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 um it's really funny what people don't realize <laughs> about things about sites like that. Mhm.
0: I forget the name of the book, but I remember there was this, 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 and it's 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 probably was put out in the 50s or 60s, but it was this book written from an anthropological perspective of set in the far future, and they were uncovering these ancient tombs. And and they're, what they're really discovering is like a, a hotel room in Vegas or something of that. Yeah, yeah
2: those were really cool. Yeah. I was thinking about what that the future is going to be just as confused about our stuff as we are about people's stuff from the past. Yeah.
0: So as we kind of wrap up here, um, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners?
2: Um, just, I have my next book coming out is May 30th and it's Witch King uh, fantasy. And then I think it's November 14th system collapse is coming out and it's the next murder bot novel and it's set um, directly after network effect.
1: I'm so excited.
2: Yep. I will have to pre-order both. Oh, oh, and I've got um, my book, City of Bones. Um, I It's an author's preferred edition is finally being re-released. It was out of print for years and uh, year, like since 90, 97, 98, something like that. So, um, and it was out in ebook for a while uh, and then it not. <laughs> so that'll be uh, that'll be coming out in September, I think. And it's got a gorgeous new cover. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to that.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I saw an article about that recently too. So
2: yeah, and I did rewrite some of it. It's not like very much rewritten, but I just went over it and kind of took out the bad writing. <laughs> so uh, that'll become it. So it's three books coming out this year.
0: We we want to thank you so much for being on here. Um, this has been one of the interviews whenever I mentioned that it was coming up that has gotten the most people excited about it. So oh, cool. Oh, love is out there.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it.
1: And we just have our little closer. But yes, agreed with Stephen. I told my um, coworker and even her husband's like, the Martha Wells. You're interviewing (laughs) the Martha Wells. Yeah. (laughs) So we're very very excited.
2: Oh, well, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Martha, for joining us on Unstacked. The Murderbot Diaries are available in the library collection for checkout.
0: They can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out her website, MarthaWells.com. That is M-A-R-T-H-A-W-E-L-L-S.com. Stay
1: safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye.
0: Bye.